Hey, everybody. I'm excited to be here today to talk with our friend Christopher, who has inspired us in a lot of ways. And if you like to drink coffee, he'll probably inspire you too. Um, and today we're just going to kind of get in the nitty gritty. How did he get started? What it makes a good cup of joe and um, whatever else might pop up. So have a listen and I'm sure you're going to enjoy because we're all fun. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Schoolhouse Life, where we answer your pressing questions and share useful tools for creating your most fulfilling, self-sufficient family homestead. We go back to basics in all things family, faith, and farming, and we're eager to teach you what we've learned, everything from growing a garden to earning an income to living a less toxic and more nature-based lifestyle. We're thrilled you're here and hope you leave inspired to live your life as a schoolhouse too. Well, Christopher, yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I mean, we've talked a lot in person and mostly about coffee. So I'm kind of hoping we got we get into a little bit more of your like deep hidden secrets today. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the best I can. Yeah, I'm stoked uh, to be here. Well, and, the segue yeah. to that is just I'm curious, like growing up was coffee roaster and like coffee connoisseur like your that was your aim? That was your goal? No, not in the slightest. No, I've had... <laughs> How several, did you get here? <laughs> I've had several career paths. You know, uh, I'm on my third or fourth career. But, um, <laughs> you know, I worked, um, I went to school for horticulture technologies and worked in the, the horticulture and agriculture field for several years. And then as a consultant uh, for farms. And um, it wasn't until I was maybe, um, you know, 25, 26 that I got into specialty coffee and got really got the coffee bug as far as wanting to learn, you know, everything there there is to know about this whole, you know, um, you know, the beverage, but then also the value chain behind it. Um, because, you know, obviously we don't produce coffee here in the States, you know, aside from Hawaii. But uh, so this uh, product has to travel a long way as, you know, a very important agricultural crop for people around you know the world you know primarily around the equator um but uh i'm not sure about the statistics but we consume a lot of coffee in the states and it's just you know um fascinating to me to kind of illuminate for people you know um what this crop uh means and what our coffee consumption means to these uh coffee farming communities uh around the world um, I think um, mm-hmm. it, it was interesting, like they were saying to, for the audience, we both went to the same coffee farm, well, like about a month apart mm-hmm. from each other. Yeah. 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 Akiari's estate. Yeah. In Costa Rica. Estate. And they, they were saying that the majority of the coffee that is consumed, it's like 80% of it is consumed before like 10 a.m. around the wow. world. Yeah. Which is <laughs> I was like, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> Yeah, but 10 a.m. is moving that. across the globe, so I feel like that just means 24-7. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, somebody <laughs> is making It's 5 o'clock somewhere, somewhere, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. Um, I, I, I thought, like, I kind of wanted to talk about the value chain some, too, because that, that is, like, having gone now in, I, I don't know, like, so we're so, you know, with our private food club, we're so specific with all of our food. But in coffee, like, I was kind of just trusting you with coffee, you know, because, like, I've met you and I know your passion level. And I'm like, OK, like, but to like, then when we got down there, I was like, it's kind of a no brainer that like we're 
at the farm. Like we've been to every farm in the food club except mm-hmm. the coffee one, which I would say. Well, maybe not chocolate. Maybe not chocolate. No, that's next. That's next. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's like um, it's such a lot for us. Like Lacey and I are so passionate about coffee. Like it's a large part of our our family consumption too. I guess yeah, it it was there were a lot of like different levels to it because we um. So I work with a central oil company and one of the things they do is they source directly from farmers. So if I want to learn about a farmer, I can go online and watch the video of our farmers and kind of get to know them and their story and their their history and like how they got into it. Um, and our company is really dedicated to kind of traveling the globe. And I'm always really thankful for that, that I can, I know where it's coming from, but I don't have to go, <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. um, that is a really, it gives me some confidence in the, the supply chain like and knowing all of that um but then we're at akiaris and i you know we're there for the coffee but they actually are doing some really cool things exploring essential oils and um and growing those herbs to start this other thing on the farm to to um enhance their diversity and it just kind of like it made me kind of more aware of how unaware we are of everything else yeah like, I, I mean we are a little obsessive compared to probably most average american consumer but how unaware people are of where their food is coming from it just feels like this huge um uh i don't know like detrimental probably what's wrong with all the food and all the health and all the like it's just like huge to be separate from where your food is coming from um mm-hmm. so i'm curious like even talking back about like how you got started so you started drinking a cup of coffee and then you're like let's go to costa rica and go to the farm <laughs> or how did you end up kind of starting to source and roast and all of that yeah well so my story with coffee is is simply that, you know, I in my teenage years, I would always hang out at coffee shops. You know, I like <laughs> the vibe or the atmosphere, whether it was like, you know, a jazzy like Tate Street coffee shop, you know, sort of the more old yeah. school um, cafes. And I guess I felt like um, uh, I had some some notion that like from back in the beatnik, you know, 60s, <laughs> like the coffee houses, you know, or where all the the poets and creatives and and, you know, even radicals would hang out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I always gravitated toward coffee shops uh, around 25 or 26. Um, I took a trip to Europe, just like a backpacking trip around a few different countries. And um, it wasn't a coffee trip or anything. I just happened to stumble upon a few cafes uh, that were that really blew my mind in terms of like the their focus on quality and um and highlighting you know these single origins and things like that and being you know the baristas being able to elaborate on those origins a little bit in addition to you know the objective like science around you know preparing the you know perfect espresso shot yeah um and uh and i was fascinated by espresso machines and how all the equipment <laughs> worked and i was sitting in a, a cafe in my town in in nevada city california and i was just on my laptop and i was reading about coffee stuff and, and i was like man i really want to get behind an espresso machine and just like try out all these knobs and handles and figure out how it all works <laughs> and i just like don't have one um <laughs> And uh, I was living out the back of my truck at the time with my dog. That's um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so I went up to the 
the manager of this like really small cafe she was running the place like by herself and i was like hey could i like be a barista and just work for tips like i really just want to like learn how to make these drinks and stuff so that's like how how interested i was was, that's awesome yeah you didn't even start as a barista like for actual money you just were like i want to do this as a hobby (laughs) yeah i want to i really wanted to learn that's crazy and then um within a few months I ended up getting a barista job at another place. It was a um, natural foods co-op. And um, so I worked as a barista there for like, I don't know, a year and a half. Um, So I was into coffee. I had a really good friend who was a roaster there um, in Nevada City. Um, And so I I was also very intrigued by, by his whole process. You know, he roasted the coffee at home or in his garage. And then... He had a little hole in the wall espresso shop um, that that my friends and I would hang out at. Um, and then in um, in 2020, you know, fast forward like three or four years, um, the pandemic happens, and all of my barista friends and coffee workers here in Greensboro, I had moved back to Greensboro by then. Uh, they were all laid off pretty abruptly during wow. the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, so we had a lot of disenfranchised coffee people and um, all my barista friends are, you know, posting fundraisers to try to pay their rent, you know, mm. because management just, or ownership decided to just cut their costs, cut their losses. Like this is a pandemic. We have to let everyone go. And a lot mm. of people were just kind of hung out to dry. Um, wow. And so myself and my co-founder, Ashley Griffith, um, you know, we we started scheming and we you know i had a little bit of money so i bought a uh, small roaster and and we thought we'll just start roasting coffee and selling it through e-commerce through instagram everyone's buying a lot of things online during that that time yeah um and then as we you know sort of you know thought about what we wanted to bring uh to the coffee industry what we want to represent um you know we chose the name loom for our our roastery and the loom is you know a piece of textile equipment that that weaves the various threads together to make this this stronger fabric and um so the metaphor i guess there is that we want to weave together these really powerful stories from these coffee origins uh and really highlight the human element like this uh coffee that ends up in your cup is the result of many people's you know hard work and like their lived experience that's coming to all the way here through many different hands to bring uh you this experience the the consumer and you have your own story and relationship with coffee and so when those things all come together it's really a um a big tapestry of cooperation yeah and and really powerful stories and that's you know that uh that culminate to make our you know coffee community and uh, you spoke a little bit about how we're rather alienated from a lot of you know the things that we consume mm-hmm. and we don't have and so it's important to us to convey that that human element and to say like like you got to go there you got to meet the people on the farm mm-hmm. um and not everyone will be able to do that, but we can at least try and honor, you know, the work that they're doing. Yeah. Um, and also like, 
you know, understand like life looks very different for, for folks in those areas. Um, and a big element of the specialty coffee movement where we we're trying to highlight these origins and maybe the coffee costs a little bit more, um, you know, that, that all serves to create a, an incentive structure for those farmers to get a better price per pound. And we as consumers, you know, have to see the value in that, that product. And also, you know, the, in the level of quality that's, that's going to be more desirable for our market here in the U S. So as a roaster, it's on us to convey that, that value, that story. And, um, and to, you know, that's our role within that, that value chain and that incentive structure. Um, You know, what's funny about your name is I thought it was really, I mean, I, I love how you described it and complete makes so much more sense now, but I really thought it was sort of an homage to the textile industry in Greensboro. Yeah, (laughs) no, totally. It's an added layer, right? Yeah, it works both ways. That was like the other element. We have a rich, you know, history of, you know, textiles here. Yeah. Um, with the cone denim and, you know, uh, all the others. So. Yeah. What a beautiful, like, like, I love a double entendre. Right. <laughs> double entendre. There it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. Okay. So when you are choosing a farm to work with, how do you get started in that process? Because it feels like, okay, you got the whole world at your fingertips. Like, right. where, how do you like get started in one direction or another? Yeah. So what that process looks like for us as a roaster. Um, you know, it, it's exceedingly rare that a roaster is working directly with the farm, um, you know, in Costa Rica or in, in Ethiopia, right. uh, you know, um, someone who's, uh, really mindful about, you know, where their food or where their beverages come from might, might want to imagine like, oh, the roaster is there working directly with the farmer. And, you know, you get the, the handshake photo, you know, yeah. at that origin trip. But in reality, um, the importing of that green coffee, you know, uh, a bag of green coffee is around, you know, 156 pounds. Um, to import that, that agricultural product is kind of its own specialization. You know, this stuff has to go through the ports, through customs, be loaded onto freight containers. Right. Um, and so as a roaster, we look to our importing partners, uh, green coffee importers, and there are plenty of them out there. Um, you know, it's, it's big business, you know, bringing green coffee from all over the world to the States. Um, and that being said, there are some that uh, are going to be more in line with our values than others. Right. Um, so we seek out importers who um, have that traceability uh, that we're looking for quality, of course, in the, the coffee. And then also, you know, most importantly, that they have a, a long-term mutually beneficial relationship with those farmers. Mm. That, um, because as a as a green coffee importer, you know, um, you could go into a community and you know 
um, with the mindset of, oh, I need to get as many pounds for as few pennies as possible and then take it and flip it to these roasters, you know, um, and and that doesn't improve the quality of life for those farmers, makes it, you know, more uh, difficult for them, especially because if if um, if that farmer has to compete on price, there's always somebody that's going to beat you on price. It's a yeah. race to the race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we look for importers that that have that long term purchasing relationship with the farms. So in the instance of Akiari's estate in Costa Rica, um, we were introduced to them through an importer called Ally Coffee. And Ally is um, based out of Greenville, South Carolina. Hmm. And they've been working with with Akiari's and a lot of other farms um, for years. And Ally, you know, they're they're a sizable company. And the the benefit to the farmers is that when when the quality is right, that that an ally will commit to purchasing, you know, large quantities from these farmers year after year. Mm-hmm. And even in some cases, purchasing that crop before it's even um, been grown. Mm-hmm. And, and so if they if uh, that would be like a, a forward contract mm-hmm. where it's, you know, as long as the quality is on par with what it was last year, we will buy this, you know this entire lot from you um in the in the upcoming year and as you guys are farmers as you can imagine that's the ideal is, yeah. uh, as far as security uh financially mm. is to know that your crop is sold before you even grow it mm. um, yeah that's and pretty- so people think of the importer sometimes you might imagine they're like just a middleman who's you know just going to mark this stuff up but they play a, a really crucial role they um you know, in that regard for providing, um, purchasing, you know, security, uh, for those, those farmers. Um, but they also, um, uh, finance roasters in certain ways by giving us terms on that, that coffee. Um, so, so they really do a lot to facilitate just the, the movement of, of the coffee. And then also, the thing we love about Ally Coffee importers, they um, they even do a lot of education on the the farm level or at the milling facility. If there are issues with quality, they'll work with the folks at that origin. You know, they'll have personnel in Ethiopia, in Costa Rica, that can advise. Hey, you know, if you can tweak this one little part of your process your coffee is going to score this much higher and we can get you, you know, a better price for your coffee. Well, that's what I, I think I loved about when we were at Costa Rica is really realizing the variety that one coffee grower can produce because, you know, you think they even all the bushes are the same because in Costa Rica, we learned they only can grow the Arabica, Arabica, Arabica. Yeah. Arabica. Arabica. There we go. Uh, coffee variety that the country has like said that's the that's the quality that they want leaving Costa Rica so they have that Mm -hmm. space Uh, but in on that estate they were processing those beans in so many different ways and like the beans that grew at a lower altitude were a lesser quality and I mean it was just really fascinating Um, and also how the demand was driving what they were producing 
So they're mm-hmm. seeing, oh, more and more people want the 72 hour process. So they're upping how much of that they're making um, and, you know, comparing like, OK, well, we can um, we can make less beans, but make them more valuable. Like it, it just is a really interesting thing to yeah. watch how the consumer is really driving yeah. the economy there. Um, well, and they were like talking about they're starting to experiment like they realize that the I guess the fermented variety is like really popular. So they're like they're fermenting in all kinds of different things. Like he was saying, they're starting to ferment in like kefir and Wani Llama and like all these like random things just to see like, how does that work? You know? And it's like, what new thing can we develop that the consumer is is eager to try, you know, something different, Mm -hmm. unique. Yeah. And I think one thing to recognize there, one, one thing, that the uh for you know all the you know faults that we could find in the specialty coffee industry it's not a perfect system it's not you know um mm-hmm. it, it's all a work in progress and um as a, an industry we're having to you know pivot and change course you know throughout the you know the last couple of decades but um one one awesome thing about it is you know, I mentioned the, the that incentive structure for farmers to really push toward quality. Yeah. Um, so that if they uh, grow some phenomenal coffee, they know that they could get two or three or four times the price per pound that um, that they would have gotten on the uh, what we would call the commodity market. There, when I say specialty coffee, that that's what we deal in. And in contrast to that is the what's called the commodity coffee market, which is um, commodity coffee is what your big companies like like Folgers or you know Nestle would um, restaurant would coffee. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the coffee that is literally traded on the Chicago Board of Trade. Um, like you can go there and you can buy and trade coffee contracts um and and that contract might represent you know um a thousand bags or you know 10 freight containers full of of coffee and and so bigger big corporations you know over the last like 100 years or so this system has developed where they can go ahead and contract you know 100 shipping containers full of of this commodity grade coffee and it'll be full of defects. It's it, generally the price hovers around $2 and 50 cents a pound oh, wow. um, uh, for that green coffee. And because the, the quality control isn't there, they roast it dark to, you know, so you can't recognize any of those <laughs> yeah. defects. Yeah. Co- coffee all kind of tastes the same when you roast it super dark. Just burn um, it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All you taste is carbon and ash. Um, and so that that there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of coffee farming for that commodity market. And if that farmer is getting, you know, two dollars and fifty cents per pound, all right, and then you know, you consider how long it would take to pick a pound of yeah. fresh coffee cherries, and most coffee is hand picked. Um, we did it we did it on the farm yeah yeah, yeah. And, we did and i mean he said there's really no there's not really a mechanism to pick coffee so i don't know 
I mean, maybe there is in other parts of the world or something, but on that farm, especially, I mean, the, the hills are just insane, right? Mm-hmm. Like what you yeah. can't drive tractors there. Like, I don't think in all of Costa Rica, there's a single lawnmower. They only weed whack. Right. Uh-huh. It, it, there's too many help. The cool. other thing that surprised me was like all the bean, I guess beans or berries, they don't ripen at the same time. So like yeah. you have to like mm-hmm. pick, uh, you know. It's, you yeah. have to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked on a blueberry farm um, in Rockingham County yeah. for a while. Yeah. And uh, and so, yeah, you have to be mindful, you know, to, you're not picking unripe cherries. Um, yeah. But uh, and Brazil is the only country where where there's any mechanical harvesting okay. really uh, anywhere else in the world. Um, is those cherries are picked by hand. But but what I'm getting at is uh, I don't know if Diego told you how many uh seasonal workers they bring in i think it's something like 2500 that's uh, a lot i feel yeah more. i think that, yeah a lot a lot of seasonal oh, workers yeah. for the harvest and mm-hmm. and so what does life look like for those seasonal you know cherry pickers if right. the farm if the farmer is only getting two dollars and fifty cents per pound yeah um, oh. they say a lot of times you know in parts of um ethiopia i've heard heard it said that uh, a coffee cherry picker makes in one month what what we would spend on a Starbucks latte. So like five or six U.S. dollars. Wow! For the whole month. Can you tell us how much a green pound of coffee would cost if you were getting the good stuff on average? Um, so specialty grades of, of green coffee for us is is usually two to three to four times that commodity coffee price. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it could be five, six, even, you know, 10 or $12 a pound. And right. it's kind of, um, it's kind of the, the sky's the limit when you get, when you, when the farmer realizes there's actually like, I could take a, a big risk and try this experimental process and come up with a, you know, a coffee flavor profile that's never been tasted before. That's going to blow everyone's mind. I could sell it for $20 a pound. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, or I can enter this coffee into a competition, you know, to get rewarded for this, this innovation that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And, and actually like there are lots of coffee that sold for a hundred dollars a pound for the green because they're an award-winning, you know, wow. re- very unique lot. Um, so I think that's, that's a really interesting part of the whole, incentive structure behind specialty coffee and and what uh what that industry can um provide for farmers is the opportunity to do that kind of experimentation Mm -hmm. it's a huge risk to take a portion of their crop and try an experimental processing method yeah to say oh we're gonna ferment this one for 72 hours with kefir and you know orange peels yeah that's um yeah if it goes wrong that coffee is just undrinkable yeah um is nasty um but then you know uh so that there's you know it kind of opens up the door for a lot of experimentation and research um around flavor and also you know the coffees that that your your csa that your buyers club um have tried from us would be like the uh the Akiari's variety Centro Americano and the Esperanza 
uh, red honey variety. And both of those are, are relatively new uh, hybrid coffee plants. Um, and so those are, are plants that Diego has selected uh, and he and his team have selected because of their resistance to certain diseases mm. um, and also resistance to drought because climate change is uh, is set to to cut the growing area for coffee in half by the year 2050. Wow. Um, on the path that we're on, because coffee only grows at high elevations, it requires yeah. a certain sort of microclimate to really mm-hmm. thrive. Um, they say by 2050, we're going to have half as much land to grow coffee. Um, so there's really a, um, a fire underneath uh, the industry mm-hmm. to yeah. come up with, you know, it's a, a lot of breeding uh, experiments, uh, a lot of uh, breeding of new coffee, you know, hybrids, uh, crossing plants that are more drought tolerant, more disease tolerant mm-hmm. to literally save the coffee industry. Um, that's interesting because like after breaking it down like on our way over there I was like kind of breaking down the numbers with Lacey of like okay if we get coffee from Christopher at this price if we go you know all the way down like how much is the picker making mm-hmm. and um, it's not very much at all well like, then they told us on the tour they told us on the tour and I I, I don't want to say the number out loud because <laughs> it, it was a I do it was a say now everybody's it was a like, small amount <laughs> It was twelve dollars a day. Yeah, That's if they did. if they picked like optimally, they yeah twelve dollars a but day. They get paid by the bag. Um, mm-hmm. But um, and then I was just like, man, we're not paying enough for coffee though. <laughs> like, I mean, know. that's that is uh, the message that we're screaming to yeah. you know our entire customer base. But you gotta be real careful with how you, you know, yeah. Everyone you know around the world right now is super price sensitive yeah, um, yeah with inflation and everything nobody's yeah. got a, a ton of cash they're you know really throwing around on just household goods mm-hmm. um but then you but know. maybe it's like you have it's like someone I, I i got in a conversation with somebody uh not too long ago that was like saying that they couldn't afford grass-fed beef mm. it was too expensive and how dare my self-righteousness say that they clear than that. Yeah. They call me holier than thou because I said you should only eat grass fed beef, but they eat a steak every day is what they two, said. Two steaks a day. Two steaks this a day. This particular person. And yeah. that mm-hmm. they, they, there's no way they can afford to eat two steaks a day. If it's grass fed beef, you and know, cut it down to one steak per day. Right. Yeah. You and you know, how, yeah, the compensation <laughs> is never on the end of making sure you're sourcing and everyone along the the line is fair it's that i deserve two steaks a day so it's just like shifting and i you know like maybe you do deserve two steaks a day but get a day a second job you know like there's you're mm-hmm. gonna have to make a sacrifice one way or the other and i think ultimately like the truth is he may deserve two steaks a day and if he doesn't feel like he deserves grass-fed well that's a shame because their benefits far outweigh you know like but the that, cost. so that makes me yeah. think the same thing. I deserve two coffees a day. Okay. Uh, definitely. Uh-huh. <laughs> and would you rather have the two, you know, commodity yeah. grade coffees or would Yogurt. you rather have right. one, you know, small cup of really phenomenal coffee? Right. Uh, that's yeah. traceable that you can feel better about, you know, spending your money that way. You know that people and, are getting paid for it. And yeah. 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 And back, Gil, to the, <laughs> back to the 
the wages that are paid, you know, on the farms, um, $12 a day, you know, it is apples and oranges to, you know, right. Well, that's the thing. Money spends differently down there, but, um, it's still, you know, they still need to be paid more. Absolutely. But, Mm -hmm. um, what it's hard to have a frame of reference Uh for that lifestyle versus our lifestyle because the way that some people live is you know like maybe it's more honorable than how we live in a consumer based mindset you know like there's definitely less consumption oriented but um they they still deserve you know better wages right and um the only way that diego and other farmers can make those numbers work. You know, it's not that they want to pay them less. They want to pay them a fair wage. Yeah. And honestly, like at Akiaris, for example, they pay better wages than other coffee farms in the area. So even $12 a day sounds, sounds low. They have to, they're actually, you know, paying a premium in order to remain competitive, you know, because they have a labor shortage. I will say like, yeah. They did like, I thought it was cool. Like some of the things they did was like, they had like housing and um, healthcare. In- internet and healthcare. And, you know, like, so like almost all of their living expenses are covered. They let them plant like crops in between the coffee rows that like kind of mm-hmm. like their own gardens in between the rows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That and, was something that really impressed me. Yeah. Well. yeah. And they pay cash every day to the workers, you know, mm-hmm. which I was like, man, that's, I mean, that goes a huge way if you, you know, if you're not having to wait like a week, two weeks or a month to get Mm -hmm. paid. But yeah. Yeah. And And I mean, just like here, I think in Costa Rica, most of the Costa Ricans that are native Costa Ricans are now at a place where they don't want to be picking, you know, in the fields. It's just not what most culturally they're doing. Um, They're taking other jobs. They're going to universities. They're, you know, doing different things now. And so a lot of their workers, just like American workers, are coming in from uh, neighboring countries like yeah, Nicaragua. Nicaragua, yeah. yeah. And it is and it is just like the phenomenon we see here in the U.S., yeah. you know, with, say, tobacco farming. Yeah. Uh, you don't see, um, you know, uh, these white kids who grew up on a tobacco farm out picking right. tobacco leaves. Right, um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah. And one thing that that impressed me also about that that uh that farm was if you go into where they have their big drying units for the yeah. the coffee beans and see the huge piles of wood that, yeah. that uh fuel their furnaces and that all of the uh those drying units all the furnaces are just burning just wood that's fallen naturally or you know saplings that have grown up in the in the farm mm-hmm. so their emphasis on sustainability is really impressive yeah there were a lot of closed circles like that well, there was another mm-hmm. one now I can't remember. So they take all the like, it's something that falls off the coffee bean and they use that the husk or, in the, the honey husk, and yeah. all that. And they use that mm-hmm. as a fer- composted and make it a fertilizer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as we, as we think about, you know, the people who are picking our coffee, the people that are working at the mills and things like that. And, and we see that, um, that, that gap in, you know, um pay that leads to you know um translates to quality of life you know regardless of where you are um Mm -hmm. 
the the question to ask ourselves is what can we as consumers here yeah. you know, in probably the biggest coffee consuming country you know if yeah. i had to guess right um yeah what can we do as consumers uh to to improve that that situation um and so as, as a roaster we just try to to illuminate you know um the human aspect of it and and i think that if you can as you drink your cup of coffee or whatever you know if you're eating your steak and <laughs> and you you can uh you know honor that this is the result of someone's you know really hard work it's not a commodity that we just take for granted and right. oh i want a bigger cup of coffee for less dollars yeah um you know it's a really sit with with the things that you're you're consuming and consider how your actions affect um you know uh, uh you know the whole supply chain the whole value chain and essentially a large part of the world i mean it, it's mm -hmm. crazy like how much like you had said in the beginning how much coffee travels and how many hands touch it and you know if all of those people are paid fairly like just like you said sitting there and just if nothing else as you're sipping it like thinking about that connection like i i do now mm -hmm. when i make coffee you mm -hmm. know i'm like man like thinking about those women and children essentially in the on the hillside picking coffee beans and like, i will point out now it's in my house it's a very mm. lovely place to pick coffee yeah i was if <laughs> i had a beautiful, farm, very beautiful it wasn't yeah. yeah. hot it was like kind of I, I could have stood there and picked coffee for a really long time we had to I'm pull the lace out. Day, but, <laughs> but mm -hmm. i was enjoying myself yeah <laughs> so um yeah obviously i can't live on 12 dollars a day though so you could there yeah, <laughs> potentially yeah yeah um, um well, just to shifting gears a little bit, like when we're talking about making coffee, I'd love to share some some maybe inside tips or hacks or I don't know, whatever you want to call them for like making the perfect cup of coffee for our listeners. And it could be I mean, I know a lot of people rely on drip. So I don't know if you have any like drip tips. Maybe you're like, uh, yeah, get rid of the drip. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, or French press, I would say is probably the second most common way i see people mm. drinking coffee and then third i would think would maybe be espresso at home um if we're not talking about cake if we eliminate cake cups from the <laughs> from yeah the, let's eliminate we're, let's, we won't get into cake cups but, <laughs> let's um, cake yeah but uh, okay drip coffee yeah so what drip, are some tips for the best cup of drip coffee yeah the, uh, with your drip coffee maker um, the biggest tip there if it's an automatic you know unit there's there's probably not a lot that you can tweak but to have um, fresh beans, freshly ground beans, if yeah. you get get a, a bag of beans, if it's from a, a reputable roaster, it should have a uh, the date on the bag that it was roasted, the roast date. Mm -hmm. um, and it's good to let those coffees rest about a week and a half or two weeks from that roast date. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I People think, you know... It's all about freshness, and we want these beans as fresh off of roast as possible. But when the coffee beans come out of the roaster, they've just gone through all these, you know, uh, thermal, you know, a lot of thermal, um, you know, chemical actions have happened during that roasting process. Mm -hmm. And they're off gassing a lot of um, volatile, you know, aromatics, and mm -hmm. CO2 is, is a big one. Basically, they're off-gassing CO2 pretty intensely 
for that first week or so off of roast. And that's going to affect the flavor profile. You're not going to get the most clear read on that, that coffee flavor profile huh. unless you let it rest for, you know, at least a week. Um, I think two to three weeks is, is a real sweet spot um, where ah. that flavor profile really comes into its own. Yeah, so, when, I ask this question. so when you roast, do you wait that long before you like distribute it? Package them? Or? We try to. Yeah. That's, you know, we ask for uh, if we're supplying to a cafe or, yeah. um, or, or something like that, a wholesale account, we ask for five days lead time. That's because we're going to roast it. We're going to try to let it chill for about uh, five days just so you get a little head start. Yeah. It gets to you at a place where you can taste it and it's going to be, you know, nearly optimal. Um, but I think, you know, two to three weeks out is really good. And, um, but then, you know, if I were to bring coffee to someone and it's two or three weeks off of roast, then yeah. drink it right I now. have some explaining to do, you <laughs> know, because they're like, oh, this coffee's two or three weeks old. And I'm like, no, no, listen, it's going to be better this way. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, French press. I would say uh, the thing to watch out for with French press is agitation um, because that's an immersion brewing method. You're just immersing the grounds into hot water rather than pouring the water over them. Mm -hmm. With immersion methods, they can be subject to or prone to over extraction and some bitterness comes out. So you want to go with very little agitation, like just put it in the French press. It doesn't actually matter when you push the plunger. You could not, you could not <laughs> push it. Yeah. You could not push it. I thought all. you had to go down and then come back up and then wait, go down. <laughs> that might be too much agitation. I don't know. Um, and, and the final thing with French press total brew time should be about three and a half minutes. Oh, wow. And so I would just put your coffee in there, put your water in there, um, plunge it or don't, and then set a timer for three and a half minutes and then decant into a different vessel. There's a lot of folks, you know, they'll make a French press, leave it in pour there. out a cup, and then they just leave it sitting on the counter. <laughs> yeah. They come just back to it at, at, you know, one in, <laughs> one in the afternoon and get another cup, um, and, and it'll be over-extracted. Um, so you get some bitterness, some just not so not so clean flavors. Um, yeah, those Very are good. my tips. My final tip for any brewing method is to, to go to our website and <laughs> buy coffees from us. Yeah. So you're using really high quality coffee. Right. Very cool. <laughs> well, and we haven't talked about it fully yet, but our hope is that we can come up with a schoolhouse roast with you and then maybe on our website you can get some of that amazing stuff too yeah we got to get you guys over to the roastery we'll cup some coffees we'll taste through everything we'll put together a blend or something for you guys yeah that's amazing i'm really excited about that um well yeah so how can people connect with you christopher i mean i did want to point this out actually because when we were at akiaris diego happened to be in the the, uh the b&b with us which if you ever are going to costa rica and you want to go someplace that's off the beaten path and that you'll get to ride horses if you want to and do a coffee tour if you want to and all of these amazing things. Um, then you should go and they have this beautiful old, it's a hundred years old. They have amazing gardens on the property and they serve breakfast and you can also get dinner there, which their dinner is just, uh, we were really impressed with the food. George is um, killing it. George. Yeah, George is uh, a great cook. He's a great baker. 
Yeah. Yeah. Really good food, man. He's yeah. doing really good. Anyway, Diego happened to pop through a couple of times while we were there. We got to talking about how we, you know, serve, use his coffee and sell his coffee through our, um, our food club. And, um, and he's like, oh, you know, Christopher, he's like, man, that guy is killing it on Instagram. Follow us on Instagram. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, probably the best way to get in touch. Send us a message on, on Instagram. Um, uh, loom coffee right yep coffee, and um and our website is the same it's loom.coffee there's no dot com no dot com loom.coffee love that oh that's yeah. cool mm-hmm. very cool all yeah. right well thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it thanks for your passion i yeah. you know like we are very nerdy about coffee but we're not as nerdy as you so it's really like comforting <laughs> <laughs> to meet somebody who's raising the bar and makes us look normal. Um, Uh, Well, well, happy to sit with you guys. Always a pleasure. Awesome. We'll have a good one and everyone stay in touch with Chris. Go buy some coffee from Chris. You won't regret it. That's right. Cool. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thanks.